Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 110, From Trafficked to Triumphant. Hey guys, welcome. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and we are coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And sadly, my favorite licensed therapist and Argyle expert, my husband, Matt Krieg, is not here today. He's got both laryngitis and our three children, so let's all pray for him. But we do have our producer and the most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hello. Hey, Steve. I ended that up on an an up note this time. Yeah, it was nice. Thank you. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about a conversation that I, Lori Krieg, the one who isn't usually afraid of challenging topics, but I've been hesitant to engage, and this is likely because of my own history with sexual trauma, but I believe that God has gotten me to a place where not only can I do this, but we really need to do this as a community, as this Hole in My Heart podcast community to engage this conversation. And what is this topic? It's sex trafficking. Now, we are not going to engage the whole of sex trafficking and all of its nuances, but we are going to be talking through and with one woman's courageous story. And as I often say around here, around big topics, we unpack that this will not be the last time, Lord willing, that we talk about this. But the woman who will help us to start this conversation is someone who's lived through it. Her name is Rebecca Bender, and she is about to release a book with Zondervan of her story, that alludes to the title of this episode, From Trafficked to Triumphant, and that book is called In Pursuit of Love. Rebecca Bender, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. We just are so excited to have you. And to get to know you better, let's just explore a little bit of your bio, and then we'll ask some questions. But after escaping nearly six years of human trafficking, Rebecca Bender received the kind of restoration that only God provides. She shares her journey from traffic to triumphant in her memoir, In Pursuit of Love, that we just talked about with Zondervan. Now she is an award-winning social entrepreneur, and she is the CEO and founder of the Rebecca Bender Initiative, a nonprofit that works with law enforcement, FBI, Homeland Security, and aftercare programs and provides expert testimony, trainings, and consultation across the globe. Rebecca and her husband, Matt, live in the Pacific Northwest with their four daughters. Well, Rebecca, can't wait to dive into your story, but we always ask a question of the week from last week. We ask both our audience as well as you, Um, and so this is just a lighter one, but what fact about the world makes your jaw drop Like, and just be like, Man, okay. To me, that speaks to the glory of God. So what? what's one of those facts? I would have to say how our body works. I mean, our, our body is so fascinating. Our brain, our nerves, our blood vessels. It's just such an incredible creation. Yes, oh, that's so, so true. So, Steve, how about you? Which listener stood out to you about their fact about the world? Yeah, this one is pretty, pretty simple. I I kind of like the simplicity of this one. Michael said, ice floats. It does. It's weird. If you put frozen water in water, the frozen water will float. I know. That's, yeah. Wow. It's weird. It's really good. What about for you personally? Makes you go, wow, God. Well, for me, you know, I'm kind of a sci-fi nerd i'm a a geek and you know there's a lot about you know alien life somebody else out there and yet all the exploration that we've done even though we've gotten some amazing images from you know the galaxy from the universe nebula and gas giants and all that kind of stuff um it's like the earth is this one inhabitable island in this huge massive void and so you look back and you see a, a, you know, like a major difference with this one planet compared to everything else that's out there. And I don't know, that just kind of amazes me that God created this vast, infinite universe and he put us in this one place that kind of is capable of sustaining us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's just making me think of a conversation I had last night because we were talking about our aliens real. Yeah. And then I know that there's like, Christians, like smart Christians who are like, yeah, I think it's legit and we can. And I don't know. I haven't dug into the internet enough. Right. But then I was like, okay, but if there's other worlds with aliens, then there'd have to be like an alien Bible. And then Jesus would have had to come incarnate as an alien. Yeah. And they're like, you know, <laughs> quoting these things that like the Air Force can now talk about these like things they've seen in the sky. And then this led to, you know what, probably what people are seeing, it could be something very real, but it, I would more think 
think that we need to open up the conversation about spiritual warfare before we need to open yeah. up the alien Bible right. convo. <laughs> right, right. In my opinion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus incarnate. I don't know. I'm about to get struck by some lightning, so I'm going to move <laughs> on. Uh, I appreciated this from Michelle, which, pause, you guys, if you want to know where to find these questions to answer our question of the week, you can find me on Facebook like 19 million times because I just created a Facebook author page. <laughs> so if you got Lori Krieg is inviting you to like Lori Krieg, I am not a giant narcissist. I just do what my publisher tells me to do. And that's what they told me to do. But on either of those pages, you can find these questions of the week or our Hole in My Heart podcast page on uh, Facebook as well. So you can ask to join that and I'll often let you in if you answer the questions. Okay. This is Michelle from Grand Rapids. One of the things that I think is super amazing about God's creation is the way that a nursing mother's milk changes based on the needs of the baby. So a baby that's born prematurely gets a different set of nutrients than a baby that's born full term, who gets a different set of nutrients than a six-month-old baby who's nursing. Also, a mother's milk changes when the mother is ill to make sure that the baby doesn't get sick. And there's just a whole bunch of other really amazing facts about nursing that I won't bore you with, but those are two pretty awesome ones. God's design is amazing. And she said, maybe this isn't PC enough for the podcast. And I'm like, well, you don't even know what we talk about. I'm like, right. that's such a beautiful, natural thing. And yeah. as a mom and a mother who is nursing a six month old, maybe that's not PC, but whatever. I'm not like, seriously, I've given birth to three children naturally and I Everyone's always like, isn't this an amazing thing? It isn't until I can feed the baby that I'm like, okay, this is amazing that God has you grow a human inside of you. And then he gives you the food for the human to survive. Like it's that's seriously. So I really appreciated that because I really am like, wow, God, you are so creative and smart. And just those specific facts that Michelle offered were just gorgeous. All right, enough nerd nerddom about the world. Um, we are excited to get to know you, Rebecca. And so the way we're going to foray deeper into this is by asking you two questions that we've asked every guest. I'm sure pretty think every guest since mm -hmm. we began. And the set of questions are these. The first is, if the gospel is, I am more loved than I imagine and yet more sinful than I believe, when was that gospel first good news for you? And... How is it still? And I'm guessing because we're going to dive deeper into your story, you're going to do this like a more generally, but go as far as the Lord will, prompts you to. Yeah, these are great questions. Um, when I think of knowing that I'm more loved than I can imagine, when that first was good news for me, I can actually remember the moment sitting in a women's Christian home. I'd not been raised in the church. I did not want to go to a Christian home. And I can remember having the moment that I heard God's voice for the first time. And it didn't come as this audible, thus saith the Lord, like we, like I had imagined when people uh -huh. said that they heard God. But it was this piercing thought that was so unique and um, just altogether different that I knew it wasn't my own thought. I, I knew immediately that it was that it was God. And that's when I realized all the good news that Jesus loved girls like me, that I didn't have to be ashamed of my past, that there were people all throughout the Bible that had past just like mine, if not some worse. Right. And so I realized that um, redemption was available to everybody. And that was really the first time I felt truly, truly loved. Love that. Ooh, you're hitting some words that God has been stirring in me, and one of them is redemption. So mm, let's keep going. But I guess just to to hear you're right now, how do you need the gospel today? Man, <laughs> don't we all still need the gospel every day, right? Yeah. I Oh, yeah. I think you brought up spiritual warfare earlier when talking about the other questions, and I think that for me is is a big one to be able to take mm. my thoughts captive, subject them to what is truth, not let all of culture, which can be so influential today. I mean, entertainment is one of the greatest tools we have to shape a culture. And so how are we using the gospel as our barometer for truth and making sure that we don't get 
you know, suck down rabbit holes that are distracting or taking us off course or um, putting thoughts in our mind that aren't necessarily uh, aligning with the word. Mm. Ooh, that's so important. I mean, there's you could just start writing another book right off of that, right? (laughs) (laughs) How can we not be distracted and get back in alignment of the mission? Ooh, so good. The influence of culture is such a big deal in our world today. So I, yes. I think it's so important to to keep ourselves guarded, you know? Yeah. And to not get let the tide, the not even it's like a river that can just shove us down so easily into its cultural uh, just messages. And so it's not even a matter of like just stand in the river. It's you got to walk against it or you're going to be moving with it and you don't even realize it. Yeah. Okay, so you wrote a book, uh, and it's called In Pursuit of Love. First of all, what is that love that you pursued, and and how did you go about that? Yeah, well, we really went back and forth on which title to go with, and we ended up deciding on this one because it felt like, for me, growing up as a young girl with with some childhood trauma. I mean, I was, you know, a normal all-American type kid, grew up in a small farming kind of lumber town in Southern Oregon. I'd walk out and grab a salt shaker and eat a tomato out of the garden type of childhood. But there was still trauma. I mean, we ended up having a few years that were really traumatic. And so as a young person, I grew up in my teens, you know, not in a faith-based home, just looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for belonging and acceptance. And I, God had created me, which I didn't realize (laughs) that this was from him with such a a brave, adventurous spirit that I found love from being the yes girl, being the party girl, being, you know, oh, we want to go here, do this, go, you know, go ask the adult to buy you beer in 7-Eleven, ask Rebecca, she'll do it, you know, and, and I found value in, in being that person that, um, was, always up for anything. The unfortunate part though, was even throughout that time, um, my trafficker began pursuing me. And Mm. I think the one thing, and I know we'll get into this later, but what people really need to realize is that trafficking all over the globe, traffickers are looking for vulnerable people. That's who they're exploiting. And so if we can all close our eyes and imagine who those vulnerable people are in your community, that's who's greatly at risk for human trafficking. And I was no different. I was a single teen mom trying to put myself through school. And my trafficker uh, pursued me because I was the vulnerable girl with the baby. But during my time being trafficked, there was these little tiny moments along the way where I started realizing that God was, was there the whole time. And that when I was able to surrender it all and pursue my relationship with him is when my life really changed. And so that feeling of pursuit and looking for love in all the wrong places when really God had the ability to fill that hole in my heart, um, Mm. that was really what mattered. No pun intended with your podcast. I know that. (laughs) Hey, Anytime people can say it, I feel like we're going to need to go, hey, or or something. Uh, No, but it's even though it's the name of our podcast, it's still true. Um, Okay, I want to ask a million questions about your story. But real quick, we're going to just kind of do a scene setting because you referred to this is many of us, maybe it's just me. But at least me, when I think of trafficking, I most often think of like shanty towns in a foreign country and trafficking of kids, which I just said those sentences lightly. But honestly, when I say them, it makes me want to throw up. We recently had David Platt on here and he talked about this in the Himalayan mountains. And you just you can't help but cry hearing him or or reading his book and yours. But you talk about how trafficking is local. Can you help us understand that? Like, because if we push it out of the country, you're like, "Eh, it's out there. Like, can you help us understand the localness of it? Yeah, trafficking happens anywhere that people exist. I mean, it happens in every community across the country. There's been reported trafficking cases in every state in in our nation. Trafficking, there's 25 different types of human trafficking in America alone, according to the most recent research. And so when we're only envisioning that one way, sometimes it's that from that one movie we saw that one time, right, right. we're literally going to miss two dozen other types of exploitation that is right under our noses. Hmm. And so what 
what we look for when we're working with law enforcement or assisting in different case investigations, or we're even just helping victims figure out, was this my fault? Which is what you can think often. I mean, we self-blame mm. a lot as victims, Oh yeah. but trafficking, yeah. what we look for are three things. We look for force, fraud, or coercion in order to, to push someone, manipulate, coerce, um, into any form of commercial sex. So that's pornography, it's stripping, it's prostitution, it's online escorting. It's anything that is the using force, fraud, or coercion to get somebody there is technically illegal according to our legal definition. And so what's fascinating for me, what I think is really important is that trafficked victims like myself, we grow up in the same culture as all of you. When you talk about thinking of it being, you know, shanty towns and foreign countries, so did I. Yeah. And so when when we're all thinking of it, traffic victims are no different. We grew up in the same communities. And so when the water is heating up around us, when the situation is getting more and more slowly, gradually um, changing, we're not noticing it because mm. we're expecting it to be kidnapping in foreign countries. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's really important to remember, too, is that. The traffic victims, we're no different than, I mean, we're no different than any of you. We're yep. the same exact culture, communities, watching the same movies, reading the same news things. And so victims, too, have those misperceptions walking in. When the danger isn't aligning, we think, well, we must not be being trafficked. This must be domestic violence. This must be, you know, my boyfriend just did this this one time and it's going to get better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And we don't grasp what's really happening until it's till it really hits you. And then you think, oh, I'm so stupid. And I did, I should have done this. And you start to really self-blame at that point. Stupid Satan. That's just the worst. Satan just sucks. It just makes me so mad because he just slowly inches us into these places and then he makes the victim hate themselves. Okay, let's talk about because I'm sure if I'm, you know, as a listener myself and yet interviewer, you know, I'm hearing that and I can even feel my, my anxiety getting higher as like a mom, as like a friend. And I'm like, wait, we're all the same. We grew up in this beautiful town in Oregon. And you know, can you help us understand how the water around you got hotter? Like, how did you specifically end up in this traffic situation? Yes, absolutely. This was similar to what we talked about earlier, just I grew up in a small, normal kind of small town in America. And my parent, my dad worked at the local lumber mill. My mom was a stay at home mom. She taught aerobics on the side. And we, I grew up with a praying grandma. She'd take me to vacation Bible school. She took me to Awanas a couple times, but it wasn't anything that I grew up with in my home at all. It was actually quite the opposite. My, my parents drank a lot. They partied a lot. I remember spending weekends in a friend's back, you know, bedroom, just playing Atari or Nintendo with some of the mm-hmm. other kids. And so I didn't really understand the vulnerabilities that were taking place, even in what appeared like a normal, you know, good quote unquote home. My mm-hmm. parents divorced when I was nine and it was a really ugly divorce. I can remember standing in a parking lot and having my parents actually pull each arm of mine, fighting over who was going to take me. Um, And so it's just a really ugly, very volatile divorce. My dad started drinking really heavy after that. He would forget to show up for visitation. He'd show up and drive to the bar and I'd Mm -hmm. sit in a car for a couple hours. I walked once to a payphone and dialed 1-800-COLLECT to call my mom to come get me. And so those don't feel like giant traumatic moments to people who have experienced childhood abuse, um, who have been, you know, raised, have been in and out of foster care. And so I I don't want to, you know, I totally understand that. The reality is though, that any amount of trauma in a childhood's life, especially in really formative years, it, it really hits you. And I think we don't realize how much. And so I grew up feeling very alone, very unwanted and very unimportant because of these, you know, changing moments kind of in my childhood, yeah. which then as I became the party girl and I found love and acceptance from being with everyone, I ended up getting pregnant at 17. I had my daughter at 18 and it was then that I met the most amazing guy. He was charming and funny and he seemed to have all the right answers. Even though in high school I was a, I was a varsity athlete, I got great grades. I 
even graduated a year early. Hmm. I still deep down wanted to feel, wanted to love and be loved, right? I mean, I think that's the root of all of us is feeling important and significant to somebody. And he made me feel that. He made me feel like I could finally have this family that broken nine-year-old me really wanted for my daughter as a single young mom. Hmm. And slowly over six months, he began dating me or he began grooming me really during this dating process and things can boundaries continued to get pushed. It wasn't this A to Z, right? It was A to B to C, very gradual increase in hypersexuality, increase in different aspects of, um, I would say culture, so to speak, which is like, Oh, sex work is just work like any other work. It's just, it's totally fine. And oh, let's, you know, let's go to a strip club for our for this date night instead of dinner. And it just slowly, slowly, slowly continued to push me until at six months he invited me to move in with him. I thought I'd met the one. And instead that night, uh, or he we ended up, excuse me, uh, I thought he was the one. And then he invited me to move in with him. And he told me his job was relocating him to Las Vegas. And I thought every good woman follows her man. Mm-hmm. And so I asked to go with him. I asked, mm-hmm. I asked to get on the flight. I asked to come. And I felt in hindsight, like he did a little reverse psychology on me. I can actually remember him saying, well, I don't want you to come to Vegas because families don't, don't live in Vegas. Mm-hmm. And I rem- remember thinking, oh, he thinks we're a family. Like I didn't even hear anything else. Just this young, naive, single teen mom, you know, 19, you know, maybe 19 years old by now, just really wanting to be a part of what he had to offer. And so my vision and, and intuition was so foggy and kind of rose colored lens from, from that. So you end up in Vegas and what was the lowest point? Like, at what point did you realize I'm trafficked? Like, this is, this isn't okay. You know what? The term human trafficking, it actually took me uh, into two years of my current marriage Mm -hmm. until I even was okay using that word. Mm -hmm. For a long time, I thought I'm just a pro, I was just a prostitute. Mm -hmm. I was just a prostitute. There's not, I have, I have no excuse. It's all my fault. I'm willing to take the blame. I'm willing to own it, um, own up to my mistakes, own up to my addictions. I ended up getting strung out on drugs. I became very addicted to money. And so in the beginning of my recovery, I took all the blame and I was okay with that. I didn't want to make excuses. I didn't want to be someone who felt like they were blaming everyone else for their problems. But what, what happened was as I got more and more involved in what I, I started saying forced prostitution because my boyfriend used fraud to get me there and then he used force to keep me in it. And so I, my quote unquote boyfriend, right? And yeah. so I remember being okay with using the term forced prostitution, but that human trafficking should be reserved for kidnapped children. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I really remember making this distinct line in my own process, mm. but I think I was so new in my recovery And now that I've worked in the anti-human trafficking field for 11 years, what it's done is it's opened my eyes to what force, fraud, and coercion actually looks like in your everyday life and how it plays out in scenarios. What is coercion? How would you know if that's playing out in your own relationship that you're in with somebody, right? And I think the more and more I became aware of trauma bonding, Stockholm syndrome, um, how trauma and the brain works with abuse yeah. and brainwashing. The more I learned about cult-like behaviors and high control groups, I started realizing, you know what? I'm not going to own the blame of my abuser. <laughs> mm. I'm done. Actually, I'm done holding that blame. I'm going to let the abuser keep the blame himself. And that's not to say that I don't. I'm not fully aware of choices that I've made, but I'm also not going to own. The, the deceit that he did to me, the fraud that he did to me, the abuse, the way your brain works when you've been um, dehydrated and uh, hospitalized for dehydration and overexhaustion from not be, being given time to sleep. Mm. I mean, we talked even earlier about newborns. I can, 
I think a lot of people who have newborns can relate to the feeling of no sleep, hmm. right? You don't make the best decisions. You're waking up, you're putting orange juice in your coffee instead of creamer. <laughs> I, I remember having one of my babies and driving past my driveway, just forgetting to turn in. Yep. Like your, your brain just doesn't work well when you've been sleep deprived. And that's what starts happening when you're in the middle of being trafficked. It feels like your brain is so foggy mm. and there's so much trauma. There became a point when I really felt my sanity actually starting to slip away from me, mm. I felt like I'm going crazy. I felt like people were following me. I had to check rear view mirrors for cameras. I, I felt like I was going crazy. And I, I detail that a little in the book. Um, it's so hard to write some of these emotions. <laughs> for me, it's easier to talk about it. But um, so we, I hope I did a decent job of yeah. letting people know. But oh, you yeah. really start to feel like, I'm going crazy. I, you know, I thought I put the keys here, but now I've lost the keys. Mm. Well, those are the gaslighting tactics that abusers use by actually hiding the keys from you on purpose to make you think you're going crazy. And once I started seeing all of this all wrapped up into this ball, and that's how he kept controlling me to be able to make money off of me. I mean, my trafficker was indicted on over $4 million of tax evasion. This is major money. Mm. And so, yes, they are willing to go to these extremes and they're a network of people that teach each other. They write books. There's forums to one another. Um, this exists in our very own communities. And we're being naive if we don't think that the hypersexual culture we live in won't have some sort of corruption attached to it. Uh, okay. I want to scene set for those who are listening because it can, we can hear this in our, I, you know, my heart's like, oh, it feels so bad. But it, I, we need to remember even that phrase that she said, as far as hole in my heart, is we all are born of God allows this God-shaped hole in our heart to look for love and completion in him. And although some of us listening might have different ways, you guys know my story, there's other stories we've had on here. You know, these stories like you're sharing, dear Rebecca, can seem so foreign, but like, you're not, <laughs> you grew up in our neighborhoods and you had this God-shaped hole in your heart. And this is just where, um, through coercion and the enemy hating you. And yes, some of your own choices, which you, I'm not going to say what you choose, you know, that's whatever you are saying that you're owning. Um, but really the enemy hate his hatred of all of us. He wants us to be addicted to evil. And so I am interested now, Rebecca, you know, you're stuck in this, like, it sounds like a nightmare dream state between this gaslighting, between this addiction, between this pain, between all these, I just see like questions and who am I, where am I? And still this void in your heart that cannot be filled, this home you're longing for, which was really heaven. How'd you get out? Yeah, one of the things that kept me from running, and people ask this a lot, why didn't you just run? Six years is a long time. Why don't you just, you know, pack up, jump out the window and run? And my answer is I did. That's why I'm standing here. I did run. Yeah. <laughs> why didn't I run sooner? Well, you know, sometimes it feels difficult to ask people that. Like, well, why didn't you fight harder when mm -hmm. someone was attacked? You know, like, you're doing the best you can in the moments that you're yeah. in. And, yeah. and if you haven't lived it, then it's hard to say what you would or wouldn't do. Um and this is why I think our brains are so fascinating is because trauma in the brain is very, very unique. Um, our, our brains are such fascinating things. But, you know, I, I remember feeling um, loyal to this family. This is my family. These are my other, you know, we call them wife-in-laws. We live, we, there was other children in the home. It very much was like a polygamous style life. And so there was moments when I could have physically ran, yes, but the mental chains that kept me was like, this is my family. I can't leave these other children. Um, I can't allow him to hurt them. I'll stay here and take it. Um, what about my, my wife-in-law? What's going to happen to her if I run? Uh, is she going to be able to, to keep you know, the bills paid? Is she going to lose it all? Mm -hmm. And so there's part of you that it, you don't just become bonded through this cult-like behavior to him he creates this false sense of family that makes you feel very loyal. And, and again, culture's done this to us even as children, right? Like, oh, don't be a tattletale. And even just the other day, my five-year-old was watching a cartoon and she said um, something about snitches. And I was, uh -uh. I thought, what are you watching? You know, and I, it's just, 
we've done that already where it's like, you're don't be a tattletale. Don't be a snitch. Just figure it out on your own. Don't go to anybody. And plus from my childhood, my dad being an alcoholic, it taught me we keep secrets in this home. Yeah. Right? You hide the alcohol when someone knocks at the door. Mm. In this home, you keep secrets. And so I just, I was taught that from a very early age from all different factors. So in 2006, a federal investigation had started from a neighbor down in Dallas. My trafficker had a home in Dallas with two victims. And the neighbor actually uh, talked to her. She had a friend who was a sheriff and the neighbor mentioned it to to him, to the sheriff, something suspicious about a house in my in my neighborhood. And so it's so important to know the red flags, to know the warning signs. It all began from that one neighbor tipping off a law enforcement officer and an investigation began 18 months later. Uh, the feds raided one of the homes in Dallas and my trafficker and one of the other victims who had a warrant for their arrest were not there. And so within a few months they had came up to Vegas and... It took me quite a while. It wasn't like you see on the movies. Um, but finally, my trafficker signed a plea deal on a on a tax evasion charge. And I knew at that point I could finally run. Mm. I had had multiple attempted escapes and he had always found me. Or I learned uh, post 9-11 that you can't buy a plane ticket with cash. So I got all the way to the airport. And they wouldn't let me on the flight. Couldn't buy a ticket. So you learn with every attempted escape what to do better next time. And this time I knew he was going to be locked up and that I could finally run for good. And so I grabbed everything I could fit in two suitcases, grabbed my little girl and called my mom and asked her to put a credit, a plane ticket on her credit card. Mm. And I ran. Mm. It was really hard. Starting over with nothing, starting over homeless at 20, what, eight, <laughs> 26 with an eight year old. Um, you don't own a fork. You don't own a pillow. You have more trauma and the same vulnerabilities that got you trafficked in the first place. So you're going right back to all the same single mom in poverty, trying to figure out life. But now I also have all this trauma. I have a criminal record from being arrested for multiple uh, soliciting prostitution charges. So now what? This real hopeless feeling of, yay, you ran. But there was this more, this giant mountain of like, really, God, is this what you have? I don't want this either. And you feel very trapped in not knowing what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Mm. You just gave us a shout out prayer that you did in the midst of that. How, how did your relationship with God, you know, you like grow, maintain, like how did he redeem this? Well, I had been radically saved in the middle of my human trafficking, and then I went back. And so you'll obviously, if you pick up the book, yeah, you'll yeah. be able to read more about it. Um, but I had been taught how to pray years prior from that from that time in my Christian girl's home. I went for my drug addiction and I was radically delivered from drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And so, and I'd heard the voice of God for the first time, like I talked to you about, yeah. but there was still this, this trauma bonding, the Stockholm syndrome that I had and, and the rehab, which was great. It did its job. It, it, you know, it, it helped get me delivered um, and, and clean from drugs but it wasn't a facility that specialized in human trafficking. And so it didn't address trauma bonding. It didn't have um, complex compound trauma therapies. It didn't have the things that traffic victims really, really need. And so I went back and when I finally was able to run for good, I can remember sitting on my government subsidized floor of my, my little crappy apartment and was on food stamps. And I can remember just crying up to God and was like, this sucks too, man. Like, I don't, I don't want this either. And if I know you're real, you've delivered me from drugs. Like, where are you now? Where are you in this giant mess that I've made sober, (laughs) let alone when I was an addict, you know, like, what do I, what do I do for my daughter? What do I do as a single mom? I I don't want this either. Mm. And I can remember once again, God just running to meet me, his voice. I heard immediately. And it, it was this moment of, um, I felt like it, implicitly the church can, the church, big C church can sometimes make people feel like if you don't clock in a certain number of hours in prayer, or you don't show up a certain number of Sundays a month that you don't get to hear the voice of God. Like you hadn't earned it. Mm. And I heard God's voice again immediately, like a dad running to meet 
his prodigal kid. And Mm. I can remember him saying, if you give me the same amount of time that you gave the enemy, I will never be outdone. And I thought, okay, you're right. (laughs) I gave my traffic that gave trafficking, so to speak, I gave quote unquote, you know what I mean? (laughs) I was in trafficking for six years Mm. and I'm asking God to undo in three, four weeks (laughs) Mm. what the enemy spent six years building in my in my life, in my strongholds, in my mind. And, and so I de- decided in that moment, I would give God six years, but I can remember saying, all right, I'll give you six years, but if it ain't better, I'm out. <laughs> Cause I, you know, you didn't really know. I'm, I don't really, as a new kind of Christian, I wasn't really sure. Yep. Um, but God showed up so much in those six years. And over time, our relationship just grew so, so strong that now, um, you know, there's nothing that anyone could say or do that would make me not believe. There's yeah. you just, you know, when you know that, you know, that God is real. I don't care what anyone said. I've, I've had the experience of being delivered, of being, having a life radically changed in six years. Um, God is able, there's nothing that you can't come back from, nothing that he won't restore and redeem in your life. Absolutely nothing. Okay, right there. This is where I sense the spirit wanting us to lean in. So I know there was a moment for me in the middle of my some of my messes where I was sitting on the floor too and being like, I hate myself, shame just like drowning me. And I'm wanting to like I'm just looking up hesitantly, my eyes looking upward. And I can just picture listeners right now, maybe they're wrestling with pornography addiction, maybe they're food addiction, people, money, whatever. And they're sitting on the floor of their own heart or physically. And they're like, I'm a freaking mess. And they're barely looking up. Can you speak to them um, just about that word redemption uh, from someone who has experienced the bottom of the pit, like Psalm 40? Can you speak to them right now? Yeah, I think... You may not relate with being trafficked, but I think everybody can relate to feeling trapped, trapped in situations they don't know how to get out of, trapped in messes they've made with friends or dead-end jobs or trapped in toxic relationships, trapped in behaviors and habits that they really want to break and they don't totally know how. God God can and, and God is able, but what's important is that it takes work. It's not, God is not this bibbidi-bobbidi-boo fairy godmother that yeah. comes in and just suddenly, dink, you will say one magic cliche prayer and some scripture and it all goes away. It's not going to be that easy. It's putting in the work. It's being that human agent for God. And it's about getting real with him and saying, all right, like here it is. Here's this, here's this mess. I don't know what to do. And you'll feel it. You'll feel the intuition in your heart. You might have some piercing thoughts that come through your mind. Lean into those. Get an accountability partner. Talk to people. Start surrounding yourself with those that have gone further than you. People who have gone deeper in their walk, um, who are maybe more mature. You may feel are more mature than you in, in their spiritual walk. Partner yourself with those because if nothing changes, nothing changes, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And and I want to encourage you, it's, you can, there, it's not hopeless. You don't have to end here. Even if you can't relate with any of those things, you're like, no, my life's pretty good. Like I've worked on tons of things. I'm doing well. You can always go deeper with God. Always. You'll never, ever be able to hit, <laughs> hit the ground with Amen. Jesus. And so keep diving, keep digging, keep pressing, keep pursuing all that God has Amen. for your life. Whew. All right. Rebecca, where are you at now? You know, you said, all right, God, I'll give you six years and we out. Just get, you know, that's what you said at the beginning of it. But I hear (laughs) you're not, you're not out. But where, where are you now away from this, this deep in like suffering space? How has God used your story to redeem others? Man, God has done so much in the last 11 years that I, I couldn't even, begin to, to, you know, where do you begin? It's like, we just, we just hit 2020. Um, I think everyone's doing kind of that 10 year decade (laughs) reflection and thinking back to Jane, it was February, 2009 that I finally stepped into my complete, complete freedom. And, and that took a while. It was a good, you know, 
up and down for quite some time, but February, 2009. And so, um, 11 years later, you know, 11 years ago, I was homeless. I was homeless. I was sleeping on couches. I finally was able to get into some government housing. I lived in poverty. I was on food stamps. I had a, a job that, um, is just a small mom and pop manufacturing plant I worked at. And I thought this can't be all God has for me. Is this all you saved me for? And it took a while to figure out what that was. And I was embarrassed to be open with my story back then. I didn't know how people would receive it. I still very much saw myself as just a former prostitute. And if people knew, um, they wouldn't want to be my friend. They wouldn't want to let their kids come over and play with mine. So I very much was ashamed still, uh, even in my freedom. And one morning God said, how can you sit here in your comfy little house with your nice cup of coffee when you know what it's like? to be more afraid to go home with a strange to go home than you are to get in a car with a stranger. How can you sit here and do nothing? And I thought, you're right. I can't, I can't sit here and do nothing any longer. And so I started sharing my story, not with really no expectation. I just wanted people to know that trafficking existed in, in every community. And slowly God began using that. Um, I've tried out every different type of uh, lane within the anti-human trafficking field. And I found what I was good at and what I was not so good at. <laughs> and what really I, I came to understand was that I wanted to get involved in the anti-trafficking field to help other people. But it was really the, the field that helped me, that helped me really have some language to what I went through to help point me in directions for prayer and resources and to go to my therapist for, I wouldn't have even known to go to a complex compound therapist, someone who specialized and could do EMDR or other types of therapy modalities that work with trauma victims. I would have never even known to look there had I not been in the field that I'm in. And so I thought that God was using me to help others, but really God truly used others to help me, to help me really see what it was I needed to to go after for healing. Mm. Today now I have you write this book that's about to come out. I created an online school to help survivors figure out their now what in life. We have a, over 644 women that have been through our online school in the last five years. Mm. We've trained over 100,000 FBI agents, Homeland Security, undercover cops. Uh, we work a lot of vice calls. We work cases. I've been able to take the stand on multiple cases and testify as a human trafficking expert to jurors to help just kind of lay the groundwork before um, an actual trial begins. I've been shocked, been shocked at what God's done with this little bit of knowledge that I didn't think was good for anything. I thought, yeah, I know how organized crime works. What's the big deal? <laughs> I didn't realize law enforcement would say, no, we want to know that inside scoop. I thought, really? I thought everyone already knew this stuff. And um, realizing that you got everything the enemy intended for harm, God had wa- God wanted to use for His honor and glory. That moment was really fulfilling because I thought, "Oh, you're actually really going to use this. Yes. You're going to use all the little details that I remember. You're going to use to help change situations, people, cases. Victims are going to find justice. Bad guys won't be able to hurt more people. Precedent is set in communities." And people are starting to see what human trafficking looks like in America. God is really, and not just from me, from from the field in general. And so just to be a small part of that has been really humbling. Oh, praise God. I just want to like clap and do a little lap around of just thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you are a redeemer. You can use all of our stories and you... You, there's nothing, no pain, no suffering, no trauma when put in the Father's hands that will not be used for good. Everything that we surrender to Him, He's going to use it for good. And I'm just like believing it over my own life in areas I still need faith. And I just proclaim it and see it in your life. Okay, just to help us practically, the theme of our podcast season, this season three, is really practical. It's just how can we get practical? And so I drive decently often past, it's a massage parlor, but something about it, it just sketches me out, to be honest with you. It, I, I don't know what it is. And so I honestly, every time I drive past, God helping me, I pray over it. I pray over it. I pray over it. And I'm like, I don't, eh, what else do we do? Like, should I call the police? Should I 
can, can you help us? Like if we have a sense, like maybe this person is in pain or, but I don't want to be a weirdo. You know, I don't want to like freak out over nothing or that building seems strange. What do we do? Totally. I think we get this question a lot. People want to know, what do we do if we suspect human trafficking? And again, it's really important to know there's 25 different types of trafficking. You can actually, if you're interested, you can just Google 25 types of trafficking and the report will come right up. It's from the Polaris Project. It's really easy to look through. But illicit massage is definitely one of the forms of human trafficking. And yes, if you see a massage parlor, um, oftentimes in in some form of strip mall or even standalone, it's not to say they're not on their own standalone buildings. If it's open 24 hours, blinds are closed, blinking open sign at midnight, 2 a.m., 4 a.m. on your way to work or like me, an early podcast. Those are definitely (laughs) red flags. Those are things to look for. And other things, cantinas are really big. Um, gang trafficking in, in rural communities, we see a lot of familial trafficking. People, um, children, unfortunately, whose parents are are oftentimes strung out on drugs and are using them as a commodity to trade for housing and, and more drugs. Um, it's a different type of child abuse. It's it's multiple perpetrators. It's not just one perpetrator multiple times. And so, we have proper diagnosis leads leads to proper treatment. It's really important. To know that all of these different forms of of exchanging a human being for something of value, that's that's what we look for to legally define it. And so what do you do if you see any one of these things that looks suspicious? Even if you have a friend that was like me, young person, I say ages, you know, 14 to 24, hugely at risk for pimp controlled trafficking. um, Which is not just the stereotype that everything, everyone, some people think it's it. You know, traffickers come in all genders, all all ages, all culture, race groups, all ethnicities. Traffickers exploit the vulnerable. And that's and so it's every single community. Um, if you see illicit massage, cantinas, gangs, biker gangs, familial trafficking in rural or in rural communities, if you see something, please, please report it. Be that tip that was just like my neighbor that helped. Um, began an investigation for me. And so you can always call the human trafficking hotline, which is 1-888-3737-888. You can also text flags to 33777 to receive a list of red flags to look for. Um, what's I think one of the tips that I could give people would be write down what you see right away. You think you're going to remember when you have time to call later, but you you probably won't. And you won't actually remember some of the details. So even if you need to just text it to yourself, text it to your partner, text it to a friend that was just the most recent person on your list and just voice text something that you see, what street you're on with that massage parlor, what's the cross street, what were you seeing coming in or out that appeared suspicious and let the hotline know. The hotline will connect you to the detective that works human trafficking in your city, which is really important to get law enforcement that's actually trained in this issue as well. It's so good and so important. And so thank you practically for exhorting me to know what to do. And, you know, the enemy would want us to stay quiet and be like, don't be the weirdo. Like he wants this evil to continue. So the worst thing that happens, guys, is we alert and it's a false alert. It's it's okay. <laughs> You're going to know how to work through that on their end. Yeah. But the best thing that happened would be Rebecca's and others like her are rescued. So there's that. Right. Rebecca, can you end today with a prayer? Um, would you be willing to do that? I just feel like, ah, I feel shaky. I feel in like a good way, but I also am like you, not only do you have the inside scoop to like help these, these cases and things, but I don't know. There's a special prayer that can happen when we've experienced something and then we can pray into it. Would you just pray into this space? And for those of us who just are arrested by your story. Absolutely. I'd be honored. All right, Lord, we just thank you so much for today, God. Thank you for um, the ability to get this message out to the masses, Lord. And Father, I pray for each person that's listening, that's hearing, that they would not be discouraged, that people would be filled with hope, God. We just pray that you release um, hope on each and every listener, each and every person who's heard this today, that they know that you are here in our midst. You are here in the midst of every community 
every um, person that you see that's sitting in darkness, that you're there with them. You're in every drug deal. You're in every, not saying you're involved, God, but that you see it and that you're able, that you, even though crime is all around us, even though destruction is all around us, that you see. And Father, we pray that the Christians around the people that need you most would be faithful. They'd be faithful to speak up. They'd be faithful to to sound the alarm. They'd be faithful to offer services and help and support. And so I thank you. I thank you for opening eyes. I thank you for opening ears and opening hearts. We pray that you know the dangers that exist. But more than that, you know you are the God of the angel armies that can come in, restore, redeem, and provide the support that we know is available in every single community to every hurting person, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. And so thank you, God. Thank you for raising up a people that would stand for the oppressed, that would stand and fight and defend and protect the most vulnerable people in your community, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Thank you so much, Rebecca. Just thanks for sharing your heart, your story, your wisdom, and even practically the phone numbers, which guys, I will link to those in the podcast episode page just so you can do the texting or calling and man, let's just fight back against evil. Let's let 2020 be the year of where the angels armies that you just prayed for and us in agreement with God's will, we just dig into fight back against the darkness. Amen. Yeah, guys, I will link to that phone number as well as Rebecca's site and her new book, uh, In Pursuit of Love. You guys can find that on our new site that's been going for this month of January. We are so, uh, it's it's just so fun. Here's a little behind the scenes on the site is I, um, I asked our web guys, like, what's your vision? Like, what, what kind of like, what do you want it to look like? And I was like, if you can fell a tree and pick some wildflowers and throw combat boots on it, that would be my website. <laughs> and so I'm super thankful for that. But guys, if you want to connect with us, you can on that site, lauriekrieg.com. Again, you can find us on that Hole in My Heart podcast episode page. But one way that you can connect with us that's super meaningful is to drop us an iTunes review. Uh, So if you guys find us on iTunes, you can give it five stars. If you feel it is five stars, that's super meaningful. And then um, just sharing anything. I'll sometimes screenshot those uh, reviews that you guys give and send them to Steve and Matt and whomever on our team. It's just super encouraging. It just keeps us doing this thing because we're not doing this because it's fun. I mean, we do get blessed, but we're doing this for you. And so letting us know how, how the you are doing and what we're doing just means a lot. Okay. Question of the week for next week. Where's the weirdest place you've ever fallen asleep? actually asked this on my Insta stories recently, and you guys are funny. Several of you had stories about falling asleep in LAX, so in the Los Angeles airport. Uh, So tell us those. I want to hear more. Uh, But you can email us at podcast at lauriekrieg.com. Heyo. Or uh, you can, again, find us on the Facebook and Instagram and blah, blah, blah. You know where to find me. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening. Thank you for caring and leaning into these challenging topics with us. Uh, Thanks again to Rebecca for joining us and for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast. We will see you next week. (laughs) 